This talk was given by Prabhu Gikhan Vasan at Zen Mountain Monastery. Gikhan is a senior lay student in the Mountains and Rivers Order. This talk, like all of our talks, is offered free of charge. If you'd like to make a donation or find out more about our retreats and residency programs, visit our website at zmm.org. Thanks for listening. Good afternoon, everyone. Um, my name is Gikhan, and I was asked to offer the talk today. Just want to uh, start by sending a, a quick shout out to uh, those who are doing the uh, continuous thread at home. Um, having done just about all of my sitting intensives over the past year at home, I realize how challenging that can be, and I don't think I ever quite got it right. So um, I hope your thread is continuous, and I, I hope that our practice in here is um, helping all of you over there. This is from Ten Directions by Master Dogen. And, of course, he starts by uh, quoting the, the teacher Changsha and then, then comments on, on the quote. In the entire world of the Ten Directions, there is no single person that is not the self. Thus, each practitioner, each fist in the Ten Directions cannot help but being the self. There are no Ten Directions that are not the self. Each and every self is the Ten Directions. The Ten Directions of each and every self are intimately immersed in the Ten Directions. So, when I'm working on a talk, my, my general process is to see what's kind of already cooking in my life. What am I already kind of practicing? What am I bringing my practice to? What is coming into my practice? And then to basically talk about that. And over the last several months, there, there, there are two things. You know, first, um, there's the ango, um, especially this fascicle with Dogen. Um, I, I've, I've grown to really like the angos where, where Dogen is the focus of study. It wasn't always like that. I spent many years disliking him. In fact, I was thinking of this incident, because I think you, Nan, I think you were actually present for this. We were, this was back when we were in um, the early days of Fire Lotus, and I think you, me, and a couple of other people were, were having like a beer after sitting, and we were just like complaining about Dogen. And at one point, I remember I like slammed my beer down, it must have been a couple in, and I said, you know, if, if people were getting enlightened before Dogen, we obviously don't need Dogen. I was wrong. I have grown to realize exactly how, how much I need him, actually, in my life. The second thing that's really been active for me is poetry. Um, as a couple of you might know, reading poetry, writing poetry has been a steady part of my life for much of my life. And um, for me personally, it's actually an, an older practice than this practice. And in some ways, it's an older refuge than than, than our refuge. And I've, it's actually sort of been um, up at a frenzy over the last few months. I've been reading a lot. And I found myself working with both Dogen and poetry sort of in the same way, you know, carrying lines around with me through my day, look, you know, calling them up as I took in the news, took in the world, and seeing how they land for me, when they land easy, when they don't. And so I want to kind of in intertwine them in this talk. Because that, that's what my, my life is, that's what they've been doing in my life. This is from, uh, this is a couple of lines by the poet Tracy Smith. She's an African-American poet, former poet laureate of, of this country. Who can say the word love when everything, everything, pushes back with the promise to grind itself to dust? 
It's a good place to begin. You know, she lays out the problem very precisely. Right? Thinking back over the past year, you know, it seems that so much has so visibly and viscerally fallen to dust. Assumptions of health, assumptions of the most basic acts of interaction, of community, of communing. Right? I remember, I mean, I was here for Rahatsu, and this is like a full house compared to Rahatsu, right? So, um, yeah, even just very basic things. And just given what's been happening in, in, in our country, which I'll talk about, it seems that even at times, you know, democracy, civic institutions, civility itself, was threatening to crumble. That's not all there was. But even for me personally, the good things have been fragile. You know, dips in infection rates followed by surges in infection rates. Um, vaccines followed by vaccine protests. The recent election, which for me was a step in the right direction, followed by this growing number of states implementing voter restrictions that are, in my opinion, specifically and intentionally designed to disenfranchise poor communities, communities of color. But as I, under, as, as I understand the teachings of, of Buddhism, of Mahayana Buddhism, the, the crumbling itself and the dust itself aren't the problem. Grinding down to dust is what things do. It's the basic teaching of impermanence. It's our basic situation. The problem is actually the, the first part of her poem. Who can say the word love? And I think that's particularly a problem for those of us on the Bodhisattva path, right? the path to alleviate suffering. How can we manifest love during these times when things are grinding down, when we ourselves might be ground down? And how can our love be of influence in this changing, grinding down world? Olga Orozco, who's an Argentinian poet, she died about 20 years ago, uh, takes up this matter at the place I think most of us take it up when we start practice, and that's the skin bag. She writes, I'm five feet four and trapped in my skin, as if in a sack of obedience and terror. I'm captive in this skin that's sewn by a thread to ignorance. I'm bound inch by inch to this smooth wrapping that halfway protects me and completely betrays me. So Orozco, she's an intense poet. I've, I've, I've read a bunch of her work. And in her poetry, you know, she, she, she faces a world that's unreliable and prone to upheaval and at the same time faces her boundaries, her strategies, her defenses, which are equally unreliable and prone to upheaval. And I think this is a, a, a basic discovery of spiritual practice. You know, if you, if I was sort of thinking about the Buddha's life when I was kind of working on this part and it seems to me, you know, that, that he realized pretty quickly when he was still in the palace, you know, according to the story, he saw an elderly person, a sick person, and a corpse. And he realized just with that, that his princely world of riches and luxury and status wouldn't free him from the suffering of life. But I think it, it took him years of practice and study to realize that his inner world wouldn't do that either. That his views, his stances, his position, his mastery of teachings, right? His intense concentration and deep meditative states, my understanding is that those are subject to the exact same forces as the outside world. I read an article recently, a New York Times article about the Capitol riots. 
and um, it, it, it was um, focused around this guy who did a study of demographics in relation to the riots. And he found that the counties with the most significant decline in white population were most likely to be home to the rioters. And the article described these counties as, so quote, places awash in fears that the rights of minorities and immigrants were crowding out the rights of white people. So I don't know that world. Um, I think I'm somewhat grateful that I don't know that world. But um, I'm trying to, uh, putting myself into that world. I'm sort of imagining them, you know, seeing their world, the world that they know, um, a white world, a right world, a correct world, a, a natural world, the way things should be, and a presumably permanent world crumbling to dust. And, you know, before the actual riot, I imagine there had to almost be the opposite that happened, right? There had to be a retreating in, right? Retreating into the, the skin, the skin bag of whiteness. And once in there, far from being freed of their fears, I imagine that they were more trapped than ever, right? As Orozco says, trapped in a sack of obedience and terror, right? Um, narratives around, you know, that um, um, there's only a certain amount of rights to go around. And if other people have rights, that means, you know, we don't have rights, right? It's like a, a limited resource. Um, I'm sure all sorts of other misinformation, etc. And being trapped, in some ways, you know, their, their outside world was crumbling, their, their inside world um, was also unreliable. And in some ways, you know, it, it, it ended probably in just one of the very few ways it could have ended, just given, given that. Volha Hapieva, who, I don't know much of her work at all, I just read a couple of her poems. She's a young Eastern European poet. She writes the following. The heart regenerates more slowly than other organs, and is never renewed completely. That's what it says in the textbook. This means, I think, that everyone in there will remain. Everyone in there will remain. Whether it's the border wall, a wall of angry white men, or the walls of the skin bag. Every fear we try to shut out in some ways has already gotten in. You know, um, I, I used to work as a, as a psychotherapist, a clinical social worker, and it always, it, it struck me as how many clients, people I saw who sort of announced to me that they had left a part of themselves behind. Um, and sometimes they sort of entered into therapy, like right out of the gate, sort of like make, saying this when they first met me. Other times, you know, a certain point down the road, now that, you know, hey, I've, I've, I've left my shy me, the bullied me, the anxious me, the awkward me, the angry me, behind. And I, I, I always wonder, behind where? Where'd they go? Where did you leave them? You know, it's like I, I recall that the, the environmental activist Julia Butterfly once said, you know, when we throw something away, where is away? Right? Where do we imagine we can throw something like a, like a styrofoam cup that's actually away? that isn't going to be part of our life in some way or part of this environment, I, I think it's the same thing. I remember there was a, a young woman who I saw, I, um, I was working at a clinic that was um, in an 
in a housing project in, um, in, in Manhattan. And uh, working with a young woman, um, I'll call her Kelly. Um, she was a, um, an African-American woman, um, large-bodied, in her 20s. And um, she, was, she grew up tough. She had to. She grew up um, with a lot of fighting. And she told me very, uh, very first sentence, the very first session when I was just getting to know her, she told me, you know, one thing you need to understand about me is that I do not cry. I just do not cry. I don't do it. I said, okay. Um, and then I said, you know, you, you, you do realize that just in working here, you know, I mean, largely this is in your control, but what often happens is that people cry. And she told me, okay, look, if I ever cry, just get up and leave the room because I'm going to get really, really violent. Like, just heads up, warning you right now. Put me in an interesting position as a psychotherapist, yes. <laughs> Fair warning, which I appreciate it. Um, but, you know, but, but part of her work, not all of it, but, but, but a piece of her work was, you know, um, helping her to understand the need to, to disown that part, right? To kind of draw her herself around and kind of keep that part out, right? Um, and then eventually in the psychotherapy session, um, uh, giving her permission to cry. I'm still here, so our worst fears did not materialize. So, um, And I think it's true also with spiritual practice. You know, when I think about going in for beginning instruction, this was back before Fire Lotus when we were a loft space in midtown Manhattan. Um, going up there for beginning instruction, you know, whatever I thought I needed, whatever parts of me I thought I needed to get rid of um, when I started are, are, are still there, still here. Right. So wh wh why is this the case? Right. Because in the entire world of the ten directions, there is no single person that is not the self. You know, those strategies that, that we use, that I use, to, to, you know, they, they, they do protect, right? Like, like Olga Orozco says, they do halfway protect. There is a real feeling of insulation and safety, right? Um, my client Kelly, she wrapped herself in a skin that was tough as nails, and it actually did keep her alive, right? And if you saw any of the videos of the riot, you saw the, the bravado and even the euphoria of the rioters when they busted in. Right, and began defacing shit, but so it did halfway protect, but of course I think one of the things that practice really shows us is that we're also completely betrayed by the, by the very fears that, that we're trying to protect against. Because in some ways, we, they were already in. And if we tighten our walls, well, we've just tightened, we've just gotten closer, right? We're actually cozier with them. In his commentary, Dogen says, each practitioner, each fist in the ten directions cannot help but being the self. We can add each enemy, each opposition, each other cannot help but being the self. And I think it's important that he says cannot help, right? It, it's, um, they don't have a choice and we don't have a choice, right? In some ways, it's, it's the way things naturally are. And I'm learning that to the extent that I resist that, I will suffer. So, who can say the word love? The great Chilean poet Pablo Neruda has a remarkable poem called The Way or the Entrance into Wood, where he enters the life of a tree, starting with the surrounding ground cover 
entering into the bark, the pulp, the rings, all the way through to the ash, when it finally meets its end, burns. And at a certain point in the poem, he says the following, and um, he's addressing the tree, and which by this point he has already entered. He says, with my lamentations that have no beginning, hungry, sleepless, alone, navigating dark corridors, I arrive at your mysterious essence. You know, having read and studied poetry for a while now, I, I sort of, I'm convinced that there is like, like a diamond net of poetry where like every poem ever written and every poem that will be ever written are sort of held in the net and they're all like speaking to each other. So in that way, I think, you know, Neruda is actually answering Tracy Smith, right? In this suffering world, in this world that grinds down to dust or, or burns to ash, how can we love? Well, this is how. Right? We start with our lamentations, our suffering. And I think it's important that Neruda says, with my lamentations, not leaving my lamentations, my suffering behind. Right? In some ways, I think he recognizes what Hapieva recognizes. It all remains. So it all has to come with us. I remember when I first began practicing, I think the first Zen book I read after taking beginning instruction was Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind um, by Shunryu Suzuki. And at a certain point in the book, he says, um, in your very imperfections, you will find the basis for your firm, way-seeking mind. And I remember how much that meant to me when I read it, right? Because you know, it meant that every part of me that I thought I had to get rid of in order to you know, have a life worth living, in order to have a, a clear life, whatever that meant to me back then, I, I didn't have to get rid of them. They weren't the problem, right? They could actually be part of the mind that seeks, seeks the way. At the same time, though, Neruda recognizes, and I think this is just a, a wonderful piece of insight that he's offering us, he recognizes that his lamentations have no beginning. Another translation says, um, lamentations with no genesis. Another translation says, my lamentations that are sourceless. And, you know, this is, I think, uh, a basic teaching in our, in our practice, right? Our suffering our terror, our obedience, our others are our creations. And as long as we keep creating them, we'll keep finding them. And we'll have to defend against them. And so I think maybe, you know, practice maybe asks the question, well, what if we cease to create them? The German poet Georg Trackel um, writes the following. Our silence is a black cave from which, at times, a gentle animal emerges and slowly closes its heavy eyelids. Isn't that lovely? Um, as a number of you know, uh, my wife, Hoswe, and I were into birds. Um, we like watching them, we like feeding them, etc. And one of the things I've always most enjoyed watching is birds when they're drinking water. Because right? birds are extremely vigilant. You know, like all animals, but with birds, it's just, you know, because I guess they're so small and so light, they're very vigilant and very nimble. And, but, but so but when they lower their heads to drink, either like from a, a fountain or, or from a puddle, there's a moment where they seem to relinquish a little bit of that vigilance. 
And depending on the kind of bird, it's either, you know, quick sips or it's a little bit more sustained sort of drinking. But there's just, it, it, but it always struck me as being a very vulnerable gesture, right? One that I, I actually really enjoy watching. So when we, when we enter practice, we enter the dark. The dark corridors, the black cave of our mind. And all kinds of creatures emerge, right? And this is obvious even if you do a period or two of zazen. And initially, they, they are not... They're not gentle animals, right? Like Trackle talks about. There's a lot of activity, right? Everything is vigilant and, and, and reacting, reactive, right? Thoughts are reacting to other thoughts. Thoughts are reacting to the surroundings. And it takes very little, of course, to stir them up, right? To set the mind building and defending and creating. But over time, I think, um, whether over time means sometimes it's, you know, in beginning instruction, people will just be amazed at the end of beginning instruction where, you know, if you're lucky, you get to do like 10 minutes of zazen, right, right there. Or over a session or sometimes just over years of practice, like anything that isn't being stirred up and made to run around, right, our thoughts, we, can become gentle. Right? The, the, the creatures in the mind can finally close their heavy eyes, eyes that are exhausted from being so vigilant and can rest. I think it's important to add, though, that this rest isn't about creating a state of relaxation or peace, right? It's kind of funny. Um, a little while back, I was at home doing zazen, and I was having a couple of pretty good periods of zazen, really deep. It's not always like that. It was that time. And I finished. And I open my eyes and look, and my eyes happen to land on a corner of my, my room where there are all these dust balls, right? Like I hadn't vacuumed or swept. And I'm looking at these dust balls, and I'm just like, ugh, like, Zazen was so much better. <laughs> you know, there, there, there weren't any dust balls when I was doing Zazen. You know, I, I really just want to go back to Zazen, so I won't have to deal with this, and, and that's what I did. I just went right back to, to Zazen, sat another period, and it, it was great, right? Because they weren't there, but but of course they were waiting for me when, when I when I when I returned. But I think they got bigger <laughs> during that time. They they seemed bigger anyway. Um, that's not what this is about, right? This this isn't about making like a manufacturing estate. In his commentary, Dogen says there are no ten directions that are not the self, and I think that really points to the basis of the rest that happens in Zazen, right? I think this is how practice makes us gentle. Because there are no directions that are not the self, we can stop being an object that has to position itself among other <coughs> objects. So we can stop making things. And I think that you know when we rest in Zazen, that's what we rest in. We rest in no direction that is not the self. The Japanese poet um, Mimi Hachikai, I believe that's her pen name, she writes, Righteousness, as a rule, comes with a tail. And when stepped on, it bellows, barks, and bites. Its mind becomes frail. It makes you want to quit quarreling and leave the place to wash your mouth out. I recently came across a really nice example of how a lot of what I'm talking about functions in the real world. 
Um, I read an article about prison reform. And as some of you might know, there's currently like a movement to abolish solitary confinement, you know, long-term solitary confinement, right? Um, very briefly, um, putting someone in isolation for months or years or even decades, right? This guy was in solitary for, for uh, 25 years, believe it or not. It can cause profound um, trauma, mental, psychological, emotional trauma. And so um, a few, several years ago, Colorado phased out solitary confinement in, in its state prison system. And um, instead, they increased access to mental health services, um, job training, education, as well as programs to address the boredom and futility of doing long term, long, long time in prison. And in this article, it said that, you know, when these changes were rolling out, a lot of correction off, corrections officers, at least in this one prison that they were profiling, walked out. They wanted nothing to do with this. But they talked to this one officer who stayed. And he said the following. He said, I never thought these changes would work. I hung in, and I'm glad I did. It's so much better to be helping people than fighting them all the time. In some ways, it turned out to be my own rehabilitation. Again, I don't know this guy, um, but I'm putting myself inside of him. I imagine that you know, the, the inmates that he and other officers, the, the system at large, wanted to keep at a distance were, were already in. They were already with him. How else could it be that you know, their suffering was his and so their rehabilitation was his as well? If they weren't in there, there'd be no reason for him to say that. He couldn't say it. It wouldn't be true. But in seeing that and in being able to voice it, right, he really was able to quit quarreling, right, stop his righteousness, stop bellowing, barking, and biting, and wash his mouth out. Wash his mouth out with the words, it turned out to be my own rehabilitation. So I'd like to end with some poetry. This is um, a few lines by the uh, Mexican poet Rosario Castellanos. I rejoice with the branch of the almond tree. All winter it was mute, but without rest, because it was preparing to change Earth's darkness to this flower that today brings me such joy. A nice poem for spring, I think. So, who can say the word love? Well, the obvious answer is anyone. Right? That's in there too. Um, You know, one thing I've, I think I've learned is that, you know, um, I think mainly what I've gotten from this practice is, is faith. Right? Faith that even as things are, are, are crumbling, there is the way to, to love within that. Right? Sometimes it might not be clear. It might be mute and cold, right? buried in there, right? just like the flower was buried in that tree. Right? But that's okay, right? It's just germinating. Other times, it flowers uproariously out. You know, I, 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 if, if I'm understanding it correctly, the, the ten directions are, have always been right here and right now. Right? Because where else would they be? And where, when else could they be? Thank you, everyone. Thank you so much for your attention. 
Thanks so much for listening. To find out more about our ongoing programs and residency opportunities, visit ZMM.org.